This morning, uh, we're going to be closing out our series in the book of James. So if you would be so kind as to open your Bibles with me, we'll be looking at the last half of chapter 5, verses 12 through 20. And uh, as we've seen throughout these 10 weeks in the book of James, the book of James on the whole is a book about the nature of genuine faith. The nature about faith and what it produces in the person who professes to have it. And all throughout his letter, James has been correcting and rebuking the churches, the Christians that he was writing to, seeking to do two things. He was seeking to expose false faith and to admonish those who are weak in their faith, to begin living in accordance with what they profess. Uh, James saw a disconnect between what his churches were saying, I have faith, and what they were actually doing. There was a disconnect there. There was a profession of faith, but there was no action. There was no transformation based on this professed faith. And so all throughout his letter, he's seeking to expose that false faith and then to admonish those who are weak in their faith, seeking to strengthen them that they might live consistently with what they have spoken. And with James's closing words here in the latter half of chapter 5, he really changes his approach. He changes his tone pretty drastically. I mean, most of you have been here for the whole study of James, I'm assuming. It's been a pretty scathing letter, has it not? He's used really harsh language rebukes, admonitions, like really confronting the people about their lives. And now that seems to change quite a bit as he brings his letter to a conclusion. Rather than approaching them from a a, a sense of rebuking them, uh, he now begins to encourage them, really. The tone really begins to shift as his letter approaches the end. He begins to encourage them to relate to one another in a way that pleases God. And as we've seen throughout the entirety of the letter, most of, if not all of, the commands and rebukes and admonitions that James has given have all been in a relational context. And that just means that he's been rebuking and correcting uh, his churches based on the way that they relate to one another. There was unhealthy relationships in the church, and this is what James was addressing. Think about a couple of the things that we've seen so far. James challenged the people in his body, in his his churches, to care for the orphan and the widow that was among them. He challenged them to do that because they weren't currently doing that. That's relational in nature. To the way that we think about and treat those who are different from us. James's illustration was of the rich and the poor in the congregation. The poor people were being mistreated while the rich people were being given special privileges. Relationships. To the way we speak to one another, the way we use our tongue. With the same mouth, we bless God and we curse one another. He talks about the bitter jealousy and selfish ambition that is leading to fights and quarrels in the congregations. Relationships. All of these things are relational in nature. And now James, as he brings his letter to a close, 
he really brings up three things that he longs to see in his churches. Relationally speaking, the way that they relate to one another, he longs to see three specific things that we'll look at here this morning. And these are the three marks of faith in the church that we will consider. Three things that he wants them to be marked by as churches as a whole. And before we look at those three different marks, uh, I want to give you a little bit of understanding of the way we'll look at the text. So James begins his conclusion in verse 12 where he speaks about uh, speaking honestly with one another. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. This begins his conclusion of his letter. He says, but above all in verse 12, introducing his conclusion. Uh, And we're not going to deal so much with that. We're going to look at the latter portion of the text But this is where it begins. He's concerned about the way in which we speak to one another. The way in which we are honest with one another. We're going to focus specifically on verses 14 through 20. And we're not going to do what we usually do. I'm not going to take every verse and try to open it up and help you to understand it in light of the whole. What I'm going to do is draw out these three marks and handle them at a much more basic level. And so with that, if you look with me at your bulletin insert, our aim this morning is to allow the three marks of faith in the church that we see to challenge our personal faith and the life of our church as a whole. I think that these three marks that James is going to unfold for us are ways that we can really grow at Fairlawn. Things that we really need to do a whole lot better. The first mark is prayer for one another. Prayer for one another. And we'll see this in a couple verses as you can see on the outline. The second mark of faith in the church is that we are confessing our sins to one another. And the third and final mark that James addresses is that we are pursuing one another in love. So with that in mind, with what we'll be looking at on the whole, I'm going to go ahead and read as we usually do, and then we'll pray and ask for God to come and help us. James chapter 5, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death 
and will cover a multitude of sins. Father, we ask as we do each week that Your Spirit would come here and be among us, that You would be removing uh, sin from our hearts and our minds that would keep us from understanding Your Word, that would keep us from being willing to do what it says. I pray that You would come and that You would work in our hearts, making us ready and willing to listen to Your Word and to live in obedience to it. I ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So James begins here with his first mark of faith in the church. And we see this in verse 14 and following. Prayer for one another. Caring for the one who is suffering through interceding for them in prayer. Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now James begins by setting up this situation where someone is ill in the church and this is likely a physical illness that they are dealing with. And so they come and they, they ask for the elders of the church to gather around them and to pray for them. This is, this is where this caring through prayer begins at the level of the elders. Uh, But he does not leave the job of caring for this suffering brother to the elders alone, but he extends that responsibility to the church as a whole. If we look down at verse 16, he says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now we'll deal with the confession of sins when we come to the second mark. But you can see here how James is putting a responsibility on the church as a whole. It's not just the job of the pastors and elders. It's the job of the church. It's a mark of faith in the church that we be praying for one another, specifically in our time of great need. Now James goes on to give a bit of a a marvelous and beautiful promise in relation to our prayers in verse 15. He says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up, is what he says. Now there's much that could be addressed here in relation to the nature of prayer uh, and some qualifications that might be added at this point given the rest of Scripture. We're not going to go into that at this point. I want to deal with this at a much more basic level. And I think most basically what James is saying is that God is a God who loves and longs to answer His people's prayers. I think that that's what he is getting at here. You see, Scripture makes clear that God does not always give us the things that we ask for, but He is always going to give us what we need. And that's often a struggle for us, is it not? It's a struggle for us in our prayer life. You know, God, I feel like I've been praying for this and I haven't received it. But I think that we can be pretty nearsighted when we don't realize all the other things that God is giving us that we truly need more than what we've even asked for. James is encouraging us here, saying that God is a God who loves to answer His people's prayers. He loves to give them what they need. 
And that should encourage us as we are praying to God personally and for one another. And this is what James says at the beginning of his letter. He's already told us that God is a generous God who gives freely to all without reproach. When we come to God in faith, trusting and believing that He is a gracious God and a generous God who loves to give good things to His people, He will not turn away from us. He will give us the things that we need. It should encourage us to pray for one another. But James goes on to give an example of how we ought to pray as the people of God. And he uses an example by using the prophet Elijah in verses 17 and 18. He says this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now James introduces this illustration of Elijah in a very interesting way, does he not? He says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Why does he do that? Well, I think if we look at his prayer, it's pretty extravagant, right? What God actually did through his prayer. And I think that we have the temptation to think, ah, you know, Elijah was some super saint. He was a prophet of God. He had the ear of God more than any of us do. I think James is seeking to show us that's not the case. Elijah was just like us. A man with a nature just like ours. That as children of God, we have the ear of our Father just as He did. How does it describe the prayer life of the prophet Elijah? It says that he prayed fervently that it might not rain. He prayed with much passion, with much zeal, with much conviction, with much faith that God would do whatever needed to be done. Does fervent, passionate, with much conviction describe your personal prayer life? Does fervent describe the prayer life of Fairlawn as a whole? When somebody walks into our church, can they see that we are marked by fervent prayer for one another? What makes our prayer life fervent? Faith. Trust. Trust that God is who He says He is and will do what He says He is going to do. He promises to give us all that we need. Should we not be fervent in our prayers toward Him? A church that is filled with people with a genuine faith will be marked by fervent prayer. For one another. This is the first mark that James unfolds for us. 
that we ought to be fervently praying for one another, and this is a sign of genuine faith in the church. Now, as he moves to his second mark, he calls us to vulnerability in our relationships. Verse 16. He says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now given this text, James desires that his churches would be regularly marked by confessing their sins to one another. And James links this confession of sins and prayer for one another to being healed. Now presumably this is physically, given the fact of what he's just said in the verses that came before. Now Scripture testifies that specific sins in our lives can often be the cause of physical ailments that we suffer. From Scripture, I believe that is clear. But there is also a spiritual sickness that comes from a lack of confession of sins. And there is a spiritual healing that takes place and that we receive when we confess our sins both to God and to one another. Consider some of these verses that speak about the spiritual healing based upon confession. 1 John 1.9 says, Keith already spoke of it, if we confess our sins, He that is God is faithful and just to forgive, forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Proverbs 28.13 says, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Psalm 32.5, the psalmist says, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And there's much more that Scripture has to say about the blessing that is on the other side of confession of our sins both to God and to one another. Forgiveness, cleansing, mercy. The list will go on and on. So with what James has said here, that the church should be regularly marked by confessing their sins to one another, uh, what would be going on inside of you if I said, all right, for the next five minutes, this is what we're going to do. I want you to stand up, uh, and I want you to go find somebody that you're not related to. Now, we're in a Mennonite church. Some of you, it might take five minutes to find somebody you're not related to. Um, but if we were to do this, and I, go find somebody you're not related to, and I want you to tell them a sin you're struggling with right now and ask them to pray for you. And I want you to allow them to share with you and you pray for them. What's going on inside of you when I propose that scenario? Now, I think that some of us may be like, yeah, let's go, let's do it. But I think that the majority of us, that there's something inside of us, right, that's like pushing up against that idea. Like, mm, you know, I think I'm just going to stay here in my seat. What is that? What is that barrier inside of us that when that's even proposed, we're just like, eh, I don't think I can do that. 
What keeps us from being vulnerable with our sins? For myself, and I think if we're all honest with each other, for the majority of us, it would be a fear of judgment, would it not? Well, when I go to this person, first of all, I, don't even, I might not even know who they are. Well, what are they going to think of me when I share this with them? What I'm, what I'm truly struggling with? Is their is there thoughts of me going to go down? Are, th- are they going to say something insensitive? Are they going to shame me? Are they going to judge and condemn me for what I'm struggling with? This would have been an extremely difficult command for the people that James was writing to to practice. Now why do I say that? Because there was a spirit of judgment among his people. Look back at James chapter 4 verses 11 and 12 with me. James says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil, or the one who speaks against a brother, or judges his brother, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? We think that that's difficult for us. We've seen the dysfunction in the congregations that James is writing to. Just a few verses later, after speaking about this spirit of judgment that is in the church, James says, confess your sins to one another, my brothers, and pray for one another. how difficult that would have been for them. Church, what we need to understand is where a spirit of judgment exists in the church, the Gospel has either been neglected or completely lost. This works in our personal lives as well as in the church as a whole. Those in the church who judge others for their sins have not been gripped with the truth of the Gospel. If the Gospel has transformed our hearts, there will be no room for judgment because we know that we are the greater sinner in the room. We know that God has given us grace in Jesus and that the Gospel calls us to extend that grace to the sinner to the right and to the left of us. If we truly grasp the Gospel and have been changed by it, there will be no room for judgment in the church. And then then this mark of faith of confessing our sins to one another although difficult, becomes a lot more easy when we all share the same understanding of our sinfulness before God and His grace to us. Does a spirit of judgment define your attitude towards others in the church? Does a spirit of judgment define Fairlawn as a whole? 
that fear that we all felt when I suggested that? Is that a justified fear? Is that a right fear? If we were to do that, would there be more judgment in this room than grace? James is showing us here that there is a beautiful blessing on the other side of confession. On the other side of confessing our sins and allowing someone to take you to the throne of grace and to pray for you. And you know this blessing if you have practiced this. You know the freedom that comes from confessing your sins to another brother. And them coming around you and caring for you and walking with you in prayer. This is what ought to mark the church as a whole. It's a mark of faith in the church. James longs for us to be marked by vulnerability with our lives, with our sins, with our failures. And that we would be fervently praying for one another in our need. James longs to see the church marked by gospel vulnerability that leads to confession of sins and prayer for one another. This is his second mark of faith in the church. And now James turns to his final mark, pursuing those who have gone astray. Verse 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James desires to see his people pursuing one another when they fall into sin. And what James is really showing us here is that there should be a mutual accountability in the body of Christ. In this church here. Christians, we ought to feel a sense of responsibility for one another and for their walk with God. We ought to invite and expect that. But this isn't often how we feel, is it? I think we've in many ways been infected by the individualism that is in our culture, right? We create and we adopt the mindset that I'm going to do my own thing. This is all about me. I'm going to take care of myself. I expect you to take care of yourself. I don't want you to ask me for anything. I'm not going to ask you for anything. It's perceived as weakness in our culture when we need the help of others. Rather than welcoming accountability, we don't believe that we actually need it. We often feel that our faith is private and of no concern to anyone else. Rather than welcoming responsibility for one another, we deny it and seek to live as solo Christians. Walking our journey of faith all alone. Our mindset is much like that of Cain's when God approached him about his brother's whereabouts. You remember the story of Cain and Abel? Cain kills his brother, and then God comes and asks Cain, 
Where's Abel at? Remember what he says? First he lies. He says, I don't know. I don't know where he is. And then he adds this. Am I my brother's keeper? God, am I responsible to know where my brother is at every moment of every day? What he's doing? What he's into? And we know that the condemnation lays rightly on his shoulders because he knew exactly where his brother was. But this was his mindset. Am I responsible for him? I think this is the mindset that we often adopt as Christians. This is a much more comfortable mindset to have as a Christian because then we can practice our Christianity however we want to with little to no threat of confrontation from anyone else. Don't worry about what I'm doing and I won't worry about what you're doing. And although this is a much easier mindset, it is clearly and thoroughly unbiblical. Now you may be thinking in light of the illustration with Cain, oh, come on. Cain was a physical brother to Abel, right? He had familial responsibilities to him. But the relationship we have with other Christians is different. Are you reasoning this way? I, I, I agree with you. Our relationship with other Christians is different. But if this is the way you're thinking, look at the way that James introduces this mark in verse 19. My brothers. My brothers. James isn't just speaking tenderly to his fellow Christians, doing a little bit of lip service here to soften them up for what he's about to tell them. He is identifying them as his family. He's showing that there is a familial connection between them. You see, one of the reasons that Scripture uses the family metaphor for the church is because of the nearly universal understanding of accountability and responsibility within a family unit. Now, there's many other reasons why Scripture employs the family metaphor for the church, but this is one of them. We all understand that. We all understand that we owe, that there's a responsibility to our blood relatives. But James is saying that the responsibility you owe and the accountability you ought to expect from your brothers and sisters in Christ is much more close to that than you might imagine. And that you might even be comfortable with. Those who share a common faith in Christ are part of the family of God and are responsible for one another. They're responsible to pursue them when they go astray. Now James does not lay this responsibility at the feet of his churches in a burdensome way. That's why he goes on to verse 20 to show us the beautiful, glorious reward for going after and pursuing in love a brother who has wandered. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
What a beautiful and rich blessing, reward that is to see one return to Christ after having wandered from Him. Ought we just to leave them to wander? No. We ought to pursue them in love, seeking to restore them to the body. Let this reward be what keeps us vigilant to care for one another by pursuing each other when we go astray. I want to know that if I go astray tomorrow or next week or in a month or in two years, that every single one of you are going to come after me. I hope you feel the same. It's our responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ. James desires that we be a church that fervently prays for one another. That confesses our sins to one another and intercedes for one another in prayer. And that pursues one another when we go astray. These things ought to mark the church that is filled with people of faith. Now, I've given you some questions to think about in relation to your personal life with God and in relation to the life of the church as a whole. Now, what I want to do is conclude, uh, not with a conclusion to this sermon per se, but with a conclusion to the series as a whole. Concluding challenge from James 1, 22. I think this is where the thrust of James's application comes from and what he is desiring to show us throughout the whole letter. This is what he says. Be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So I, I did a little bit of research. All right, If you've been in every sermon... Uh, throughout this 10-week period, you've heard the Word opened up and preached for roughly 374 minutes, which is about six and a quarter hours. If you have also gone to every ABF, won't have one ne- or, yeah, we won't have one next week, but uh, if you've gone to every ABF up until now, you will have spent roughly 400 minutes discussing James, discussing the Word, discussing the sermons, which is roughly two and a half hours. Add it all together. I'm not great at math, but I think I can do this. Twelve and three quarter hours you have been here at the church hearing the Word preached or discussing the Word in your ABFs. Now, this doesn't take into account the amount of personal study that you have done through the book of James, the amount of meditation that you have had on the Scriptures. We could say that there's been a lot more time invested, can we not? And what's the point? Given what James says here, we have had ample opportunity to hear the Word. Be doers of the Word and not hearers only. We have had ample opportunity to hear and consider the Word. The question that James wants to point us to and ask us directly 
is are you striving to change in light of receiving the word? Can you write down one thing that is different about you or that you are striving toward after the hours and hours of hearing, discussing, meditating on, and studying the book of James? One thing. Have you repented of and are you repenting of your failure to care for the orphan and widow if indeed you are failing to do that? Have you turned away at all from your involvement in the things of the world from being stained by the world? Have you repented of treating people according to the stereotype that you believe they fit into? Have you sought to control your tongue at all? Are you striving to turn away from the wisdom of the world and to pursue the way of Christ? Have you sought to identify the idols of your heart and turn away from worshiping them? Have you mourned over desiring to acquire success in this life more than you desire to invest in relationships? Are we a church that is marked by a faith in God that reveals itself in our relationships? Are we striving to change in light of what the Word has said? Or are we deceiving ourselves? Is there action that goes with our faith? Is our faith transforming us? The book of James has been a giant book of self-assessment for us as individual Christians, professing Christians, and for us as a church. And I don't discount the possibility that after hearing this entire sermon series, there may be some in here that are like, my faith is dead. My faith is not genuine. I have never had genuine faith. If that's you this morning... Come to Christ. Come to Jesus. Jesus is the answer for those of you here today who know that you have no genuine faith. That you've been deceiving yourself. And to those of us with weak faith, who do not live consistently or as consistently as we ought to with our profession of faith. Come to Jesus. Come to Christ. And He will strengthen your faith. My prayer for us as a church, as a whole, throughout this entire series is that we would not be deceived about what it means to follow Christ and about what genuine faith is calling us to do and be as His people. Let me pray to that end. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Jesus. 
Thank you that no matter where we find ourselves in life this morning, whether that's with a weak faith or no faith or strong faith, the answer is that we come to Jesus. Spirit, would you work in the hearts of the people here? Work in my heart. Reveal the deficiencies, the weaknesses in our faith that we might repent and turn away from them and pursue Christ. Convict those who know that they have no faith that they might come to you and repent of their sins and join the family. I ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. I realize that... uh, Discerning these things, weak faith, no faith, can be difficult to do that on your own. Um, I'm available if you'd like to come and speak with me. I'm sure that if you're here with a friend uh, who is a Christian, they would love to speak with you. Begin to connect in this way. That we might strengthen each other's faith. And when we come to faith, we might have a place to go for accountability, responsibility, love, and care.